and welcome back to Beware the Artist. I am Jeremy Jersa, and with us this week, we have David Humphrey. Um, David, if you want to give everyone a little intro and tell us who you are and what is it that you do. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for having me on your show. Um, I am mostly a painter. I make paintings. I've kind of lived my adult life making paintings as much as possible. I make sculpture also and have been in bands and make music, but this thing of, of driving forward in the studio, one image after the other, researching, building, it's kind of been a lifetime, it's been sort of a lived life. I do teaching also, I know Jeremy, uh, from having been a visiting critic at Penn, I'm at Columbia now, did some time in the trenches of Yale, MFA, I've kind of been, been an adjunct, I have adjunctivitis, uh, probably for my, since the eighties, something like that. So the secret has always been to not teach too much. Um, I've tried to balance it with writing and making work and maybe selling work from time to time. All right, um, so in terms of subject matter, uh, your work seems to uh, move from the personal to the political and anywhere in between. Um, could you talk a little bit to how you are actually deciding what a painting is going to be about? Yes, sure. I mean, I'm always trying to, in some kind of super generalized way, um, find, find a connection between the lived life, individual subjectivity, consciousness, and the larger world. Um, and maybe, you know, that will pass through, according to the painting, uh, intimacy, intersubjectivity, relationships with other people, with larger groups, with the domestic space into a broader social space. So I kind of develop paintings always somewhere on that gradient or trying to sort of navigate the connections between that individual subjectivity and the larger picture. And sometimes they kind of cluster into groups and I'll develop series based on, you know, family, let's say, or um, recently, my, I have a show on right now, um, thinking about the police and thinking about state power, uh, exercise of, of violence um, in the context of the social but of course, always in the language of painting and trying to make something that has a kind of uh, plastic energy, a kind of visual um, dynamism somehow. Uh, and in the case of these paintings, I want the I want the work to have a kind of power, but it power in the service of questioning power. Mm. So it's a little bit of a kind of a complicated dance. But the trick is always to somehow just make it as vital and alive as possible. And to have the thing maybe be more than all I put into it. I put a lot into it. I mean, I develop images through drawing, variations. When I finally started big painting, it's, um, it's usually underwritten by a lot of image research and kind of recombinant hybridizing. And now I feel I've got enough going, but I also really, really 
hope and want the thing to be bigger than the sum of my intentions. How do you do that? That's very tricky. I feel like that's something uh, most artists are, are trying to grasp that these, these, these concepts that are larger than ourselves. Um, also in a kind of self-gratifying way, uh, you know, grandizing ourselves in a certain sense to keep our, uh, you know, connection within, within history in, 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 a, in a way. Um, when I look at your work a lot, I, I feel as though there are kind of these, I love that you use the, the term plastic almost, because um, there is a very plastic kind of feel at, at moments. Um, but yet there are these simultaneous realities that are happening. Um, can you talk to how you're developing that language and what you're thinking about? Sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's like one quotient of me. I mean, I guess, you know, like the way our DNA has all this information uh, that intersects with our experience to kind of make this strange hybrid singularity that is you or me. And so um, I, there's a pop artist in me that's, that's always kind of like scouring and part of the kind of consumer ecosystem of you know digesting images, but then there's also you know researcher who look looks at you know historic art and information in other fields, and I I try to hybridize them in a way that feels mm, alive, the way let's say our consciousness has a kind of vitality, a life force that's that's not just us. It's like language and history and our environment kind of intersecting um, with whatever it is, sensibility, something like that. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a little bit um, around about. I feel like it gets there. Um, so as you're, you're doing this research and you're pulling these images and you're, you're, you're making your sketches and then moving to a kind of a larger canvas, um, how, how, does that, how does the painting start for you? Are you, are you starting with kind of a general stroke? Are you, are you, do you have this plotted out in context of a thumbnail? What's, what's going through your head? I like to think that each painting has its own kind of genealogy. So sometimes uh, it could be like even a phrase or something really stupid and I'll, I'll get the idea. Like, um, and then I'll develop it as a, as a small sketch and it might sit around amongst the array of things in development. Uh, like, a, like I'm, always in, I'm always looking for protagonists and a protagonist can be a location, you know, and I'm looking for locations, but sometimes location, the location can be the protagonist and vice versa. And so in my studio, there's an array of drawings and sometimes they're kind of abstraction, color studies, looking for a kind of habitat maybe for a variety of protagonists. Sometimes like in this current show um, of the police paintings, I was just up late one night. I, I tend to um, practice, practice my bass with headphones while an image is on the television. So dum de dum de dum round and round on the bass grooves. And here comes like uh, the show Cops or Body Cam. And it's like, what the fuck? This is really complicated and sort of evil. Anyways, I took some snapshots off the television set and then brought them into my studio and started to develop images from that. Okay, so that's something that springs off of um, a 
public image that then individuates and develops tangents. Sometimes, I mean, I just had this kind of thought that uh, the cell phone rings and it says cock-a-doodle-doo. And what? It's just a rooster, wake up, you know? And so I did a little drawing of that. It's just like a kind of a stupid mental image. Now that's just sitting around, but there will be a painting probably one day with a little word bubble and it says cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, you have to somehow be open to kind of subjective impulses, whims, kind of ridiculous ideas that, that maybe crack you up and then let them nest into the kind of broader array of research and image development and readings. I don't know, it's a tricky thing. It's somehow managed to never quit being alive for me. And part of it maybe, and this is a little bit of a disease structure where I can't know whether a painting is any good or finished or not, unless it's in the context of a lot of other new things. Mm -hmm. So I can't even finish something unless I have a bunch of other ones starting up that I'm really excited about. And then I can finish that one so I can get it out of the way. But that means I'm never done. Wow, that is a, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting concept. They're, they're, they're growing together, this, this mass, this body of work, and then playing and feeding off of one another. Um, there's a lot of, you, you speak to a lot of play almost um, in the studio space. How important to you um, is this idea of play? I think it's huge. I think it's really alive. I mean, I guess in some sort of child psychology developmental sense, play is the creation of a space, you know, where the child can kind of exercise power a little bit, but also make believe. And so I think there is a sort of set of connections between like dressing up, masquerade, identity formation, and um, you know, memory, imagination. So play, yes, thumbs up to that. Um, there's a lot of instances I, I see on your Instagram and then I'll see even when you had the, the show at uh, St. Charles Project in Baltimore. Um, you're really using that tool of the, the camera um, to, to generate ideas, um, sp specifically in the, the St. Charles show where you, you had an image and then you would paint over top and maybe photograph again and then go back into it. Um, there seems to be a lot of improvising. Are, are you looking at things such as the, the found imageries that you're working with as brush strokes to enter a painting? Um, what is that process? Yeah. Yeah, short answer, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I like the idea that somehow technology and, and um, technological imaging has somehow become a prosthetic part of the way we see and the way we remember and imagine. And so when I uh, print out a photograph, and in that case, you know, like a large, you know, like a vinyl, seven, seven feet, it's almost always begins as a kind of speculative operation. Um, I'll, I'll go through all my photographs and think that, I think I could find my space in there. And often, and sometimes it might even begin, and this would be a purely improvisational strategy as an act of vandalism, like mm. clearing out a space, like the, the inaugural gesture in that series of paintings would be just maybe an obliteration of something, which would then make a space 
to project into. And so sometimes I'll be not just collaborating with the photograph, but I'm collaborating with myself. And so those would be, you know, one photograph, print, vandalize, then I'll start to, that's when the kind of associative relationship starts to happen, where I project into and I see the possibility, oftentimes of a protagonist that could emerge from it, like a person who is somehow has been latent or is lying, you know, incipient, nascent in the, the kind of crash between the photograph and my, you know, vandalism. Um, that's, that's the kind of improvisational strategy that kind of reaps many, many different rewards. And sometimes it, it might be that it just somebody from one of my drawings walks into the photograph. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the, the language that, that you use within, um, in terms of the visual language that, that you've developed over the years, um, you can look at a David Humphrey painting and you know it's a David Humphrey painting. Um, this, this same kind of language uh, moves into your three-dimensional sculptures. It, it looks as though your, your paintings have come to life and even when you look at them in the round, um, they slowly start to kind of reveal themselves. Um, how is that process happening for you? Are you using this same kind of improvising of found object and then altering it um, in order to kind of build the same way you approach a uh, painting? Yeah, maybe more so. I mean, there's there's been different phases in my sculpture and there was a phase 10, 15 years ago where I would be embedding found ceramic figurines into the sculpture. And so that was more of a kind of collage practice or in which I'd be kind of collaborating with the found object. Sometimes I used plush stuffed animals and it would be as though in, those, in that case, I thought I was responding to or exaggerating or making a cartoon of the rhetorical solicitations of the object. Like what, what does it want? The stuffed animal wants to be touched. Okay, here comes the touch, but it's kind of a weird mutilating destructive touch out of which emerges this new thing. But recently um, my sculptures have been a little bit more abstract and more directly improvisatory, maybe in a kind of engineering sense where I'll have some found wood and I'll cobble it together with screw guns and circular saws, really, you know, simple carpentry to make a kind of a, uh, an armature or bones, let's say. And then I'll kind of go in and fill out the musculature with foam or some other materials. And then here comes the skin. And now it's a new thing. And I, and, you know, then the skin gets clothing, you know, in the form of paint. So these are each one of those phases is improvisatory, but the aggregate of all those improvisations ends up with something that's very specific and emergent and not, you know, so improvisatory, but, but, but a kind of layered one. So how does that relate to painting? Um, it's the, it, it emerges out of the same sensibility and I love having them interact with paintings, but they, they don't have the same image research feature anymore. There, there are almost like a kind of antidote to painting 
or maybe a kind of an exaggeration of one aspect of the painting into the third dimension, the Z axis. I love that. Um, so when you when you first came and you started your kind of artistic journey in, in terms of taking it seriously academically and then and moving on, when you came to Micah, you you saw yourself as a sculptor, didn't you? I did. I uh, I mean I I was kind of a lazy stoner jackass, um, but I knew that I there was nothing else I wanted to do but be an artist. I had no idea how to do that. But I my dad was a Sunday sculptor. He was in advertising, and so there were materials in our basement. And I, I did enough to get into art school. And then yes. once I was in art school, it's was like, oh, what the hell? Here's my tribe. This is so interesting. And I, never, I didn't draw. I never knew how to draw. Everyone else was really good. And so I, I kind of um, had to remediate. And I got this kind of catch-up energy that just kept on going. I'm still catching up, I think. <laughs> um, learning how to draw, you know, ah, I'm not, you know, not getting it. But what happened was um, at Micah in those days, you couldn't just take sculpture. I mean, I, I went to Micah because the, there was this station, the train station. The train station, the yeah. Area, and I'm like welding and oh my God, I can make these things. And like so freshman year, no, no, no. Sophomore year, now you got to take 3D design first. And by then I was kind of figured out that painting was pretty cool. And so I, I barely got into the sculpture area of Micah. That's um, wild. But I was up and running as a painter. And um, in terms of what the sculpture says that the painting can't, um, what, what, what's kind of important for you there? Hmm. Well, one thing that sculpture did and one thing that sculpture does in the context of a painting studio is it it amps up it has such a kind of presence you know that its life is a life among other objects within mm -hmm. the architecture and so painting has the potential to be just merely an image or an image um you know that can kind of live as a jpeg or on instagram or something like that but uh, it also is, a, is an object among other objects. And I think that having sculpture um, coexisting um, raises that awareness of, and uh, the, the awareness of a painting as a thing. Um, so I know early on, I, I felt like I wanted to make an image that had the kind of presence that could interact with things and not just sort of recede through the window of you know, the, the depiction. And maybe that also you know, is part of my post-modernity post maybe, you know, that having a, having a painting that has many different languages it, it, within it and maybe that also has the capacity to be present mm -hmm. and make a presence, even if that presence has the doubts, you know, has, a, has a self-consciousness about its you know, the artifice or maybe it's tainted ideology um, as presence uh, was amped up by, by having sculpture around. But that's, that sounds a little wonky, maybe. I, I, I get it, though. I feel as though the, the sculptures, um, the one thing that a painting does is it, it creates this realm that you can enter into outside of being a, an object on the wall. It, it allows you to enter a, a certain kind of mental space. 
Um, but the, the sculpture itself, it creates these simultaneous realities that you have in your paintings in the, the present moment so that the uh, audience is interacting with these simultaneous realities one-to-one -one rather than just imagining them. Well, Jeremy, that's a lovely thing you just said. <laughs> feeling, I mean, I'm feeling like it's a, that's, you, you said something very nice about the work. Um, I mean, this, it's, a, it's odd, like you make, when you make a, a picture, let's say, and it's a fiction that has qualities of space or distance or things that are up close, that's, um, that kind of involves a spectator in a certain kind of way. They're sort of a co-participant in, in that fiction. Um, at the same time, and this is, you know, we've known this forever, it's a thing made of mucky, gooey stuff stuck on a surface. Um, and that kind of two-foldedness is part of the joy of it and maybe part of a cognitive motor perceptual uh, play. Here we are, back to play. Back to play and, and back to the studio. Um, one thing I'm always curious about, um, especially being that everything's kind of hyped up with, with today and, and the pandemic and um, you know interactions are limited with, within um, not only the art world, but the world in general. Um, how has your studio practice changed or has it changed um, during the pandemic? Well, um, you know, it's, it's so disturbing and so strange and I can't even separate the pandemic from our political picture and the election. On top of that, it's just been so kind of uh, head spinningly disorienting. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the last election I found so disorienting and so um, whatever, that's, that's the background. But meanwhile, quarantine is, is like a gift to artists. I'm happy to be in the studio all day, every day, as much as possible. And um, I mean, this is back to the initial idea, like this life lived, this life lived in a kind of a weird solitude, like a productive solitude. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky to be married to another artist, Jennifer Coates. And so, you know, we, we have each other and we have our work and our studios are kind of like in some, this is another like idea of play and childhood, you know, the, the childhood imaginaries, like all alone in the studio is a very densely populated space. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of others and voices and images there. So, you know, it's a happy little, uh, a happy little world. I mean, I, um, in that respect, I don't know if that answers the question exactly. I think it gets there. Um, <laughs> So in, in addition to um, your artwork, you're, you're also a musician. Um, so what are some projects that you've been a part of? Um, and do you see them as kind of separate entities or do they kind of filter into your studio practice as well? Yeah, I mean, my studio has a bunch of instruments there and, and, um, and you know, thank God for uh, like home recording, you know, can kind of wear the different hats, I can inhabit different positions. I've started playing bass in the last few years and that makes a really great sort of, you know, tectonic undergirding to whatever music goes on top. I play some saxophone. Um, I kind of came into uh, performing music in the eighties. I was in the part of a kind of a no wave downtown scene. Uh, I had a band called Details at 11 and we played this sort of 
slightly cartoon, agitated, um, I don't know what you'd call it, hybrid art rock, something like that. Um, but it was a time when uh, the nightclubs were very like engaged and exciting um, art venues. Mm. So performances and and exhibitions would happen would happen like East. I'm thinking of the East Village um, in the late '80s. It was just like something I wanted to be part of. Like let me in. And some of these bands, you know, like the musicians weren't like pyrotechnically accomplished, but they had attitude and spirit and energy. It was like, I want, I want that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And so, yeah, I played in those bands. Um, you know, the music is at a certain point, we had a record and the record did okay, but then, you know, here we are playing the same old venues, smoky, underpaid thing. It's like, well, you know, I've, I started to teach then, I was writing and, you know, it was the whole, showing my work the whole time. So I kind of retreated back to something a little more quiet. And, um, but when I started to play bass recently, I came back and had been playing with various bands and um, I have a band called Frogs with my wife with a P and a Z, kind of kind of cool. Some, some place to kind of dump all the musical, you know, song ideas. Anyway, it's an, it's, it is part of a kind of a living ecology in the studio like it's when you sort of reach a certain threshold in the workday, I find it great to just pick up the saxophone and scream and yell, just purge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, just picking up my guitar and laying down a couple of riffs after a, an especially uh, stressful studio uh, session, just kind of get that, that inner uh, struggle out almost. Um, right. And also, I mean, I don't know if you have to do this, but I mean, in, if, in my studio day, I've got, there's always a soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I it's just rolling by and I'm like, oh, that's a cool riff. And you can go over and say, oh, there, hmm. That's so, it's not as hard as I thought it was. So what is the, uh, what's the soundtrack in David Humphrey's studio? Oh, goodness, A to Z. It's so <laughs> funny because I, I like asking that question of people and, and more and more these days, people just say, I don't know, A to Z. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's like electronica, there's, there's the, you know, the angry metal hardcore side. There's the, there's the super like jazz, advanced jazz. There's so much great music out there. Um, you know, I love the idea that Spotify is like the universal jukebox. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> if I can just like say, I'm, I'm I'd like to hear some English Renaissance music for a while. Okay, cool. You know, John Dowland, I could listen to him all day. Um, you know, um, Machot, Guillaume de Machot, wow. And then just like spin from that into what, Candiria, some kind of mm. like jazz fusion, hardcore music, wow, cool. Yeah, I think, I think my, my, my own studio soundtrack is, is pretty, it would be pretty weird if someone was to just say, oh, this is the same person listening to all this music. I'll go from Tom Waits to EDM and then everything in between. Um, so I, I love asking that question of uh, fellow artists. Um, when uh, when you're in the studio, what what is your kind of strategy for when you are struggling with a piece? Yeah, that's a challenge. I mean, uh, the easy answer would be smoke some weed. <laughs> um, 
then the harder answer is, is to get perspective. Maybe it's the same thing, to triangulate by working on something else. So for me, the studio is a kind of um, uh, an array of stations. There's like the drawing area, there's like small works in development, paintings on paper, large things, more than one. And so if I'm stuck on an individual painting, I do not linger there. Mm -hmm. I work on something else and move through it and, and almost inevitably at some point in that moving through uh, the cycles, I'll find a solution to that stubborn painting. It might take weeks, it might just be curing, it'll be dormant, it'll be waiting for that answer, but usually enough new stuff accumulates around it. So as you are working these things as a whole, um, I, I love this idea of, I always talk to my students about working a piece as a whole. Um, it seems as though you're working your entire studio as a whole constantly. Um, how many pieces do you have going at, at any certain time? I would say there might be like pinned to my wall 20, 20 to 30 drawings or works on paper mm -hmm. that have something for me. Either they're there to remind me of something that I want to develop later. Um, if the drawing has lived its life and developed into a big painting that goes into the drawer, then there's things on the floor that are really, really like very speculative. It might be, you know, like a something I've just washed, cleaned my brush off on, but which becomes a sort of abstraction that, you know, uh, is waiting for some kind of projection onto. I've got these paint markers now that are very, uh, very easy to kind of work on top of a painted surface. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe four or five paintings, like significantly sized paintings in development, um, kind of all coming up together. I mean, I, it's not that interesting, but it's but that's how I do it, and and, mm -hmm. and it kind of things go into the racks when they're done or they, I mean, thank God for having exhibitions mm. because then those things go off and they are officially in the world. They have their own autonomy and they, and their absence from the studio clears a new space. Um, so at this point in your career, um, you, you're cited by many artists as being an influence on their work. Um, some look for you to inspiration and um, some cite you as a, as, a, as a huge influence. Like I, I just said, I'm kind of starting to babble. Um, but my question is who are your influences and where do you draw um, inspiration and excitement from? Wow, Jeremy, that's a, for some reason, that's a hard question. I don't know. I mean, I want to, I want to kind of make a joke about these, these people who are, you know, cite me as somebody uh, who's an influence. I think, oh, all, all three of them, all <laughs> the five of them, but I have had many former students and, um, but I mean, I was just at MoMA the other day and uh, the Met, thank God they've reopened. And I find myself just drawn back to, and this is so wonky, Cezanne. Mm. What a beast, that guy. Okay, why? Um, I feel like there's something about him as, I like thinking of him 
as a psychedelic artist, because there's something about the way mind and body intersect with the, the sensorium, the world, that is this kind of contingent, um, not fixed thing. Like I have the feeling that when Cezanne looks at the landscape, he's kind of patching his way in and he kind of makes sense of things um, relationally. Like this light on that branch in relationship to that little piece of thing way over there on the mountain. And then he kind of builds it and it hangs together. But when you look at it from another, you know, you, you look at one part, it hangs together differently. So the thing is constantly remaking its coherence mm. um, dynamically. So I like to think that somehow that's what I want to do between works themselves inside the studio. Like what's the aggregate coherence of all these images, all these gestures, all these parts that it, it hangs together dynamically and provisionally the way Cezanne does. So, oh, okay, so he's someone I just care about forever. But at the same time, you know, here I'm on Instagram, rolling down, 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 down. And it's like, what the fuck? All these amazing artists out there. I think it's kind of not a bad moment for painting. A lot of them are former students. So, you know, I'm getting something back from them or they're showing somewhere and I kind of think, whoa, hey, that, uh, that Lou Fertino, you know, I've been maybe, I'm thinking about the kind of social space of power and the police in this kind of generalized charged political moment. There's Lou Fertino, he's like looking at his dirty dishes and he's like boiling it way down to a kind of intimate space. Mm -hmm. And so I think, oh fuck, I went down the wrong path. <laughs> so I'm very suggestible or, you know, I'll go down the street and there's my friend, Amy Silman, you know, she's doing these gestural improvisatory paintings that have a kind of rugged uh, spontaneity. I'm like, oh, maybe that's, that's the ticket. So um, I like to think that my ADD suggestibility um, somehow renders my, what I do kind of porous to all these other influences. Now, you, you know, you were very kind to say that you could always recognize a David Humphrey. I'm not sure about that, but maybe you can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trapped in my own, uh, I'm trapped in my own subjectivity. So um, you, know, you, you spoke to a lot of, um, you know, your, your students and, and the, the back and forth between um, you and your fellow colleagues. Um, what is the kind of best advice you have received over the years, whether it be general or in terms of art? And what would be a piece of advice you would like to pass on to a uh, future up and coming class of creatives? Jeremy, you know, funny, I looked, I knew this question was coming. <laughs> and when I, when I saw, when I saw it, I just like drew a total blank. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I didn't get advice like that. Or maybe I did and I pretended I didn't, I don't know. So you know, half the time, I just think whatever, stoke the vitality, throw logs on the tiny embers of whatever it is that gives you some kind of joy. I mean, this sounds, it's not really advice, but I feel like each generation, each person kind of invents art again, according to their own terms. 
you know, yes, we've inherited this language, and that the and that the the key that the the critical um, imperative is to is to be excited about it and to stoke your vitality. Okay, so like sometimes when I see a student, um, and I don't have this occasion so much anymore. I'm I'm in at Columbia. I'm a mentor, so I just have me and my students, and I don't get the chance to see how uh, my colleagues are addressing work, but I have seen um, a certain kind of critical attitude by faculty toward their students that seems paralyzing. Mm. Like it's so kind of self-conscious self making and um, you know, has the effect of kind of tamping down that like energy. Mm -hmm. That, that to me is not a good thing. And so any advice I have would be like, stoke it no matter what. Don't, you know, just whatever, trust it. I don't know. I can't, I, I'm not good at that, you know, sage, <laughs> the sage thing. I'd rather be down in the, in the weeds, mucking around. I love that. I love that. Um, so you, you recently just had a, a book come out, right? Yeah. So that's, that was a long that was kind of a long story, and maybe it is a, does relate to this other question because there was a former student of mine, Davy Lauterbach, who was uh, getting his MFA at RISD in, in the zeros, and he, you know, we, he was a cool, weird, interesting artist, um, animator for The Simpsons, and so he went on, you know, he came to grad school and showed, but he, he kept paying attention to my work over the years. And at some point, about five years ago, he said, I'd like to make a monograph on your work. This doesn't exist and I, I would like to have it, I would like to see it in the world. And he was looking for another project to kind of get out of maybe Simpson's world. And so he just single-handedly undertook this thing on his own. And so it's not a usual. It's not the usual profile for the existence of a of a monograph. Usually, a museum, you know, goes with a <laughs> retrospective or something. So he put this thing together, and it's very impressive. And it is a kind of picture of my work going back to the you know late seventies. And uh, it's very it's very gratifying and very happy with it. Uh, at the same time, it's like whoa, that you know, maybe I don't have to be me anymore. There. There's a version of me and that's, you know, that's fine and done. And, you know, now I'm free to be someone else. You have a show up right now too, don't you? Yeah. So these two things are uh, t t timed a little bit. The show is timed to go with the release of the book. And um, yeah, here it goes. Once more with feeling. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very happy with it and glad. And it's a weird moment because there are no tourists in New York. People aren't, mm -hmm. people from, the world aren't coming to see shows, but in a weird way, the more living part of being an artist in New York for me has been just like this community of other artists and they are coming to see the shows and that's cool. Um, and there are a lot of amazing shows on in a way. Um, I'm feeling that the art world has, there's a, the, the tribal feature of it, the sort of the world of artists, like this is our like identity, like if there's, whatever, some version of identity politics is like, I identify with artists. I love, I care about artists and they're around and happening. And you know, the, um, 
I don't know, it just feels like there's a lot of good art being made. Um, and you know, the diversity of the art world has exploded. That's wonderful. So much to learn from artists who have not had a voice. Um, so if people are looking for your work, um, where might they be able to find it? Hmm. Well, I'm Googleable, of course. Googleability, Instagram, Aiken Hump. I have this, uh, my middle name is Aiken. My grandfather's name was Aiken, but so Aiken Hump somehow is like stuck. I just chose it as a sort of screen name, but there I am on Instagram. And you know, I, I, I provide images regularly, but meanwhile, my gallery, Fredrickson Fraser, that's, uh, they represent me. Um, this is like my fourth show maybe with them. Um, and so their website, my website. Great, great. Um, I think that is the, the perfect place to end. Um, David, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate uh, seeing you again. <laughs> thank you for the, all the fine attentions. <laughs> no problem. Um, so everybody, make sure you check out David's work. Uh, check out his show that's up in New York. Go get the book. And I will see you all next week. Bye.